Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. Thanks for checking into the best Houston sports podcast. Robert along with Sports Radio 610's Sean Bajani, and I'm going to make that his official name. We're going to get the birth certificate changed to Sports Radio 610's Sean Bajani. If you're new to the show, welcome aboard. 45 years in journalism between the two of us, 35 covering sports in the H. Later in the show, we talk about a veteran Astro that is working on a new position in the field. But let's get to the Texans draft because... They finished it off. It's our third show on the Texans draft since Thursday. So go back and check them out. We covered the first three rounds of the other two. And Sunday, I had Frank from Rockets Shop Shop talking about the new Rockets coach, M.A. Udoka. That's in the queue, so go make sure you got that one. But, Sean, I want to go pick by pick on the Texans' last four rounds. And their fourth-round pick, we'll start with him, was TCU defensive end Dylan Horton. What do you know about him? Big cat, 6'4", 257, uh, an absolute terror for uh, offensive linemen and quarterbacks in the backfield. Texan native, uh, so that's a good thing. Led all FBS with 10.5 sacks uh, last season. Uh, 15 TFLs, played in 15 games for them, and was also uh, honorable mention uh, all-conference player. Uh, one of the most impressive things that I actually read about him was the fact that he put on 50-plus pounds during his time at TCU. The, the reason why that stuck out, and I like that, is a guy that's 6'4", 257. You look at his frame, and he's going to be a guy that if he comes in to this Texan system, which he is relative to any other system, and they ask him to be at a certain weight and they like a certain body type, I feel like he's got the kind of body, the frame to get there and be whatever they need him to be. So I like that about him, the ability to put on weight. I mean, I don't think I've fluctuated 50 pounds in the last, I don't know, 30 years of my life, (laughs) maybe even more than that. I'm 40 years old, man. So I I like his frame. I like his size, the production at the collegiate level, the fact that he's been a durable player. um, I think uh, a really good value pick for the Texans at uh, 109 overall. Yeah, born in Houston, spent his first year in Houston, Texas, before he moved up to that other part of Texas we don't like to talk about near Dallas over the Frisco area. Now 257 pounds. It should be interesting to see what he can do because I think the concern with him a a little bit anyway is against the run, but, you know, just developing as a pass rusher, Sean. Yeah, you know, one of the biggest, the biggest thing you know, in regards to any college prospect, right? Whatever position it is, they all have something wrong with their game that, you know, makes it difficult to translate to the next level. There's a lot of things that you like. There's a lot of things that you see. But when you're evaluating these guys, when the scouts are looking at these guys, pouring over the film, their notes, and just re-watching them, whether it be from last year or years past, it's, okay, well, what have they progressed in? What can we fix? What do we feel really confident about this guy and his game that we can, you know, maybe make better or completely change, but he's got the tools, the makeup for for that to be an easier process, process than somebody else. So, you know, that that's a question for all of these guys, question that I don't know the answer to. But when you're taking these players, it doesn't matter if it's round one, round seven, 
your scouts, your coaches, they feel really confident about the fact that you've got the staff that can do that with these individuals. So for that reason, I'm excited. The, the most exciting thing about this whole draft outside of Stroud, Will Anderson, and Tank Dell, of course, is the fact that I felt like they addressed every need, every important need positionally that was an absolute must-have. And I think they continue to do that with the undrafted free agents, which we can talk about later. In the fifth round, D'Amico went with a fellow linebacker from his alma mater, Alabama. What do you know about Henry Tua Tua, which I think is how you say it, Tua Tua, is that right? What I was going to tell you is what I don't know about him, and that's how the hell you say his last name. <laughs> I think it's going to be really fun trying to remember how to uh, spell it. I mean, it's T-double-O-T-double-O, but exactly where those apostrophes go, uh, I've got to do some studying on that and copy and paste. To to it's Toa Toa, maybe? I think it's Toa. I don't know. I think it's Toa Toa, but it looks I like he looks like he was ahead of the Me Too era with that name or something like that. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I'll go with like, you know, kind of the choo-choo train sound. I'll go toot-toot. You know, that's fine <laughs> with me. <laughs> you know, as a linebacker, if he keeps chugging and getting to quarterbacks and stuff in the run, like, I'm all good with that. So I'm going to go toot-toot every time he does something for the Texans. But copy and paste is going to be our best friend anytime we have to write about him. You know, hey, look, he's another Alabama guy added to the Texans roster. Uh, joins John Mechie the third, who obviously the Texans added last year, and hopefully this year we'll have the chance, the first chance to see really what he can do. Joins Will Anderson, Christian Harris, another rookie who the Texans selected in the draft last year. Look, 19th linebacker ever taken in the draft while Nick Saban's been the head coach at Alabama. Okay, it's not like these guys are just flying off the shelf. Like if you like a linebacker at Alabama, you're going to take him in more times than not 19 over the course of a 16 year career and counting for Nick Saban in Alabama. They typically have a dude. He was a guy who was their signal caller. He's lauded for his smarts, his toughness. I think he's a perfect fit, kind of like Will Anderson for a guy like D'Amico Ryans with that that dog mentality, but somebody that. Uh, is very cerebral, very smart, calculated by what they do on the football field, but demanding. It seems like he checks all of those boxes. All right. This is an incredible story about this kid. 16 years ago, his family decides to move from Sacramento to Utah to get away from the violence on the south side of Sacramento. Now, keep in mind, he's one of eight kids. I don't think all eight of them maybe were born at that point, but one of eight kids, the family packed the moving truck, said goodbye to everybody. His dad's on his way home with a cousin. And at 2 a.m., they decide to stop at a fast food place. A couple of guys mistook them for somebody else they were looking for. And while Henry's dad was in his car, they shot him five times in the neck, shoulder, forearm, back, and in the head. Somehow, Sean, his dad survived and is good today. Unbelievable. What doesn't surprise me about, and this is speaking generally with the, the type of human beings that the Texans have been selecting under Nick Casario in these drafts the last couple of years specifically, are they've all had their fair share of human adversity, whether it's been very personal to them, dealing with a sickness, some sort of a tragedy that has directly impacted them mentally or physically. That is the, the kind of guy 
that they're going for. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. I mean, that's just the kind of human being, the kind of character that they're looking for. Whereas if you can overcome things that are far more important than football in this world, and you are still all about this game, and you love it that much, and this is an avenue for you to take care of your family and that sort of thing, then we want you in the building. You're going to be a dog for us because you fought like a dog through these adversities. And so Henry toot, toot, is no different than, than that type of a guy. And so uh, another big check, green check mark. I'll go Milo, Blue Star, whatever you want to put on there for him and in his football character and the kind of player that they expect him to be. Culture, culture, culture. Seven of the nine guys they drafted were team captains. Now, in the sixth round, the Texans took their second center of the draft. What can you tell us about Notre Dame's Jarrett Patterson? And what about taking another center in this draft? Interesting move. I love it. I love it. Create competition. And it should tell you everything they know about, uh, you know, Jimmy Morrissey and uh, Questenberry. I always want to, I always want to call him Scott, but I always get nervous that I'm going to confuse him with his brother. And now I'm not even sure of his brother's name, but you get my picture. David. Yeah, David. There you go, David Questenberry. And I think there's a third too. Um, but look, Jarrett Patterson, 6'5", 306, big center, uh, good size for what Bobby Slowick wants to run with this offensive scheme. Another guy who moves very well laterally. Look, sixth round pick, sure, I get it. But this guy's resume screams D-A-W-G, dog. Why? Here's why I think that. He suffered some intense injuries. Torn pec, Liz Franck injury, a foot sprain. And oh yeah, by the way, all that aside, he battled through them all, ended up starting 34 games combined at the center and left guard position during his career at Notre Dame and didn't allow one single solitary sack. That's impressive. Yep. 1,686 career pass sets, zero sacks. With the second six-round pick, the Texans took a second wide receiver in this draft. Does Iowa State's Xavier Hutchinson look interesting to you, Sean? Yes. Um, and, you know, here's a really good reason why. He finished just behind University of Houston receiver and now current teammate Tank Dell in receptions this past season with 107. He broke his own program's record for catches this season. He also led all of FBS in catches per game, just averaging under nine per game for the season. And look, I, I read about some things that Brock Purdy uh, had to say about him last year's Mr. Irrelevant and turned out to be very relevant himself for the 49ers this past season. You know, talked about the heart that the guy plays with, talked about the fact that he's got a great ability to get through tackles and is strong to the football. Holding on to the football, he's a natural, uh, you know, catcher of a football and he can just break tackles. I almost think about, you know, him in the same light. I, I don't know who said this specifically, but I'm sure you've heard the same quote that I did in regards to now his teammate Tank Dell, another awesome electric receiver. If he doesn't want you to touch him, then you're not going to touch him. Well, Xavier Hutchinson, I think about in this light, you get your hands on him, you better make dang sure you put a shoulder and a helmet right through his chest and wrap up because it's going to be really tough to bring this guy down at 6'2", Let me repeat what you said off the top. Second in the country in receptions last year. And how about this? First in receptions per game. His speed is the biggest reason he was picked in the sixth round and not earlier. 
because the boy can catch the football. D'Amico might have asked Brock Purdy about Hutchinson because Purdy threw passes to him at Iowa State. So with that relationship, I'm sure it helped. Uh, that, that was, uh, you know, when Purdy was uh, with the Iowa State before the Niners drafted him and D'Amico hung out with them there. And by the way, Xavier started a blend Juco here in Texas because of grades. Yeah. We talk about stuff that guys have had to go through. He, he didn't have the grades to get into the big time schools. He had to go through the Juco route. So this won't be the first time, Sean, he's lived in Texas. Yeah. Well, he even admitted as much, um, you know, in his first interview with, I think it was DP Sidhu, uh, after the Texans drafted him, you know, she asked about his sort of progression and, you know, career to even get to this point. And he was like, Hey, look, and I initially, I didn't take care of my business when I was supposed to. So I had to start off and blend. And, you know, go that route. It was hard fought, but eventually he was amongst the very best receivers in all of college football this past year and earned the right to be taken by a uh, team that really needed, uh, you know, some some different talent, somebody that brought something unique to a receiver core. And that's one thing that, you know, I want to look a little bit deeper into specifically with the Houston Texans, who are a pretty diverse group in terms of the different kind of receivers that they are currently employing on this roster right now. You talk about guys from Nico Collins to Robert Woods to Tank Dell, one of the smallest but most electric receivers you'll ever see now on this roster. Now you factor in Hutchinson. I mean, it could be a really special group down the road, but it's going to be a hell of a lot of fun watching them all develop together with their new franchise quarterback, C.J. Stroud. In the seventh round, the Texans add pit safety Brandon Hill. I assume... Sean, he's mostly a special teams pick, right? Yeah. I mean, we'll see how it goes. Uh, you know, size, what does it matter to Nick Casario and to the Texans? I mean, he's 5'10", 193. You know, maybe somewhere over the weekend, Frank Ross was, you know, smiling ear to ear, not just because he got Tank Dell as a potential return man and one of the most electric potentially in all of football, but maybe Brandon Hill too, you know, another special teamer who's, you know, got that dog in him. I like the fact that, you know, he comes from Pitt. Pitt, if you go back and look in the last handful of years in the drafts, a lot of corners, a lot of safeties have come out of Pitt under Pat Narduzzi, you know, who's a defensive-minded head coach over there. Uh, so I'm kind of excited about that. They've got some really good players from there. You know, I think DeMar Hamlin, you know, is a guy who was drafted out of Pitt a couple of years ago. And obviously we all know DeMar Hamlin, not just because, you know, he suffered cardiac arrest on a football field this past January and overcame all of that, but because he's a freaking damn good football player. I think Brandon Hill is a damn good football player too. Just everything that I've read, you know, he's a smaller, aggressive guy. And going back and looking at some of the things that he did at the combine, you know, he put up the fastest 40 time amongst all safety prospects over there with a 4-4-4. And that raised a lot of eyebrows. Obviously, it was speed. This is maybe, maybe if I'm remembering right, I mean, I can't think of another Texans draft class that would be lauded as the fastest and maybe most athletic. This would have to rival it, right? I mean, I can't think of anybody else. I mean, maybe go back when Jacoby Jones was taken by the Texans. That's a while back. But you got dudes top to bottom that are absolute dogs, athletically freakish, and fast. So Brandon Hill, add him to the mix. We'll see what he does. If he's a special team or cool. But if he can also supply some depth in terms of coverage, you know, in the secondary, if they're playing quarters or whatever the case may be, um, we'll see. Put in the comments what you think of some of these draft picks. Uh Give us your final thoughts on the Texans draft. We want to hear you throw it up on YouTube. You can subscribe as well and listen 
to us on your favorite podcast app. And Sean, let's go to the undrafted guys. And before you you give me maybe a couple of undrafted guys that you're excited about, maybe one or two guys, you don't have to mm-hmm. get into all of them. But it's interesting that from what I understand, the undrafted guys have gotten so expensive that I think what's going to happen is you're going to see maybe teams less wanting to trade away those late round picks like they sometimes do. Mm-hmm. And so you might see them keep the sixth and seventh round picks. You know, Casario has always put a uh, a value on sixth and seventh round picks. He's added quite a few of those guys, but he usually trades them in other deals and, you know, to move around and stuff like that. So it's just something to keep an eye on. But was, was there a guy or two that really interested you? I haven't seen all of them, um, you know, really two maybe stand out for me. It's the uh, edge rusher from LSU, Ali Gay. Uh, you know, played three years there. The numbers maybe aren't that impressive, but, you know, 36 tackles, I think three and a half, four sacks, something like that. Some forced fumbles for the Tigers this past year where he really kind of put his name on the map. He kind of intrigues me a little bit. Just another edge guy, you know, somebody else for maybe depth, push some younger guys for competition. The guy that I read the most about, that I saw the most about in terms of these undrafted free agents was... I think it was Rotowire that maybe put this out. They do a lot of stuff, you know, with fantasy football and things like that. And this was like the second or third guy that they uh, did a write-up on. And that's running back. I don't know how you say his name, but I'm just going to go Xavier Valade. I'll call him X, you know, for short. But the last name is Valade, running back out of Arizona State. What I was reading about him is that if there's any one of these undrafted free agents that the Texans signed particularly that could really push for some early playing time this season, it's Valade. You think about the running back room behind Damian Pierce, you've got Boone, who they'd signed, and you've got Singletary. I think, you know, everybody really knows a little bit about Singletary and what he's capable of. And, you know, kind of he's an ascending player. He's got a couple of three years in the league with some impressive numbers. Don't think he's ever rushed for less than 4.4, 4.3 yards per carry in his career. But you've got a guy like Xavier Valaday, who, again, could maybe be a change of a pace kind of a guy for Pierce, who is going to be your run through the brick wall kind of a guy. Could be an interesting little watch, you know, in training camp to see if he pushes these guys for some playing time early. Yeah, and you know what? I, I heard a lot of analysts sort of crapping on the Texans as far as their talent and what they've got. And I get it. They were I terrible last year. But, you know, I, what I didn't understand was that people haven't looked at what they did in free agency. And I, I, I think we spelled it out when free agency happened. But, mm-hmm. you know, adding Dalton Schultz, they had one of the best catch, pass catching tight ends in the NFL. Damian Pierce was one of the best running backs in the NFL. Their left tackle is a pro bowler perennially. Uh, they, they've added a guard that's a good, solid veteran right guard. They just drafted two centers. Uh, one sense. of them is considered top three in the draft. Uh, if you look at defense, they added some guys in the middle of the defense where they were get ripped apart that are mm-hmm. veterans that know how to stop the run. They added a veteran and Jimmy Ward in the safety. You know, the talent, I get it, looked awful last year at times, especially on defense. But number one, there's a lot more talent that they added in free agency that just shored up some positions. The depth maybe not there yet quite or not there quite yet. Yeah. But it it's a big deal that, you know, this team has some guys now that can at least cover some things up that were issues last year. And a lot of that stuff was addressed in free agency. And then you add Will Anderson, who, 
looks like he could be a Pro Bowl defensive end, C.J. Stroud's going to be a rookie quarterback, which typically is not good. And I'll, I'll stress yeah. that. So I'm not expecting eight or nine wins. But the idea that the Texans get crapped on with talent and that, oh, they're bringing in C.J. Stroud, but they don't have anything around mm-hmm. him. Yes, they do. I mean, yeah, these wide receivers have got some stuff to prove. But Nico Collins was a second-round pick. John Mechie was a second-round pick. Both of those guys were considered not much worse than third-round picks. You've got Robert Woods, who's a veteran, and if he can come back from the injury, and I get it, there's question marks about him. But you've got some guys that can catch the football, and Dalton Schultz matters. That's that's a big deal that you just added the tight end that's a regular pass catcher and one of the best ones in the NFL. And I just I don't understand that criticism, Sean, at all. I'm actually glad you said that because I'm right there with you. Um, I heard a couple of different national radio hosts over the weekend um, talking about even local. You know, I think one of them was a local guy and good friend of mine, Joe George. Um, I don't know if he said it or somebody he was hosting with, but they were like, you know, this is maybe a bottom three roster in the entire league. And I'm like, first of all, I bet you couldn't name, you know, the other 29 rosters you're talking about okay so one stop stop trying to sound smarter than you probably are so i'm going to go ahead and crush whoever the hell that was for that comment and then it was like oh maybe bottom seven it's like stop it you don't know you you have no freaking clue everybody that you'd mentioned and most of them by name you're 100 right look most of them are 20 somethings anywhere from 26 to 29 years old jimmy ward probably one of the more exciting, if you want to say, uh, intriguing free agent signings by the Texans this offseason. You know, he's 31. He's got nine years in the league. I still think it's a legitimate question to ask whether or not he's got that much left in the tank. I don't know, even just at the age of 31. But I do know this. He's one of the few that actually signed a multi-year deal. It was a two-year deal. He's a D'Amico kind of guy, operated awesomely in that system over the course of the last couple of years. So I'm excited about that. But yeah, you go top to bottom. Man, look at receiver just specifically. Look, you mentioned a couple of guys in Nico Collins and John Mechie. Unproven. And that's a commonality really throughout this roster. It's largely unproven. But I think in large part, this year, this offseason, this free agency period, if you're going to judge 2023 to 22, 21, and even 20, that is also largely improved. Because they've turned a page. They're not even in the same damn book anymore, Robert, of a team that was trying to be bad, not trying to be good. However you want to couch it, they are trying to be good. They've even told you as much. Two days ago, three days ago in the press conference, Nick Casario was asked point blank, where are you in this whole rebuild? And he said, phase two, about to get to phase three. What's phase two? Phase two is trying our butt off to get to the playoffs and create a winning culture here. Okay, well, that tells me that you weren't anywhere close to phase two last year, nor were you trying to be. This is the year. You've got good good guys, but mostly unproven talent throughout. But you sprinkle in some good veteran dudes, offensive line. They took care of a couple positions interiorly on the defensive line. The secondary, I mean – I don't know everybody's secondary in the division alone, but it's got to be one of the better ones in the entire AFC. How do you not get excited about Jalen Petrie and Jimmy Ward, a healthy Derek Stingley who's going to be used the right way? Those three alone should excite you. 
Yeah. And look, I, I didn't mention Petrie because frankly, I think the tackles were very overrated last year, considering how many tackles he missed. If you look at, you know, some of the ratings of him, he was a very average or below average safety, but in totality, but he was an ascending player. He played his best football of the season late, which I'm encouraged by because he even told you that the dude is a dog in the film room and he's not afraid to call himself out. His play got better over the course of the last month of the season, I thought. And, you know, look, you're going to miss more tackles when you have more opportunities to make tackles. That's something that he's not going to be comfortable with. He's going to be better. But it's a different mentality, too. You didn't hear anything in regards to, you know, the style of play that they want to have. No, they played scared cover, two last year, you know, under Lovey Smith. This whole swarm mentality, there's not one player on either side of the ball that doesn't talk about that. And before you do it, the number one thing you have to do is talk about what you want to be. So I think they've certainly got the verbiage down, whether or not they can put into action is another thing. But Jalen Petrie is one of those dogs that I think can help you put into action to make this defense actually exciting. Yeah, again, I'm not going to say anything about Derek Stingley until he manages to stay on the field for a season. Jimmy mm -hmm. Ward's going to have to prove that he can stay on the field this season. There, yes, there are things that the Texans have got to prove. But let's move to the Astros because, hey, yeah. they're still the defending champion. Uh, and I, I, I got to get into Abreu in a second of what's going on with him. But because of what's going on, Abreu, let's start off with interesting news over the weekend. Dusty Baker says that they're going to try Michael Brantley some at first base when he comes back up. He should be back within the next week, they're saying right now, uh, potentially next weekend uh, at the earliest. But it's interesting, Sean, Michael Brantley at first base. We talked about it this spring, right, when he was getting a little bit of work. Um, yeah. I mean, it was early before he had to shut things down again and, you know, obviously left for personal reasons, whatever that was for. But, hey, <laughs> I'm all for it, man. Get his bat in the lineup. It's a, if it's at first, I want to see it before I criticize it. You know, well, first. with Corey Jolks and what's gone on with him and how Jake Myers is playing and how Chaz McCormick's playing and how Abreu's playing. Yeah, if you can get Michael Brantley in at first base, it's a big deal. And, you know, with Brantley being a left-hander and Abreu being a right-hander, it allows him to do a little bit of lefty-righty things yeah. occasionally, stuff like that. With with Brantley's injury history, maybe you don't want him running as much out in left field. And but you know, there's work at first base, and there's you know some work with your hamstrings and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, it it would be a big deal if they could get Michael Brantley to work at first base. We talked about this too a little bit uh, a little bit ago, maybe a couple of weeks. Abreu plays a lot, man. He's an everyday guy. You know, if he's not starting, uh, you know, at first, he's dh in, coming off the bench, whatever the case may be. He's out there and he's getting bats every day. Maybe this is an opportunity, you know, when Brantley does come back for a guy like Abreu to get another spell or two, you know, in the course of a week, at least until the guy figures out what the hell's wrong with his swing. Obviously, Alex Cintron has talked about that, which we'll get to in a moment. But I just I want to see Michael Brantley back. How about that, though? You know, you've got a what? 14, 15 year veteran, proven hitter. He's going to give you 300 if he's, you know, able to play and he's healthy, right? But the young guys are pushing Michael Brantley like out of the outfield. It's like, nah, we're good out here, man. We got Myers, we got Jokes. You know, obviously Tucker's doing his thing. You're going to have to find somewhere else to play, Big Cat, because we got it going on. I love that. <laughs> that, yeah, that those, I, are, those are problems we've been looking for. And I don't even know if it's that 
young guys pushing Brantley out. I think it's the old guy in Abreu that's making, uh-oh, like maybe we need a little help at first <laughs> yeah. base. There was some comments made this weekend about Abreu's swing. What did you, th- what were, what were the comments and what did you think? Alex Centron, you know, was asked about uh, Abreu's struggles at the plate. And he said, look, I'm not worried about it in terms of, you know, his age and the steep drop off and things like that. But he thinks it's strictly something mechanical. And he goes back, he was talking about going back and looking at his history, you know, and what he's done over the course of the month of April in his career. And, you know, you even look at last year, which it wasn't great. But it was better than what's going on this year in terms of batting average balls in play, exit velocity, and, you know, his hard hit percentage. They're all down pretty significantly, even from last year. If Alex Cintron thinks that it's something just strictly mechanical, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. He says it's something with his hands, something little with his hands that he's doing. And I actually hadn't had the time to go back and, you know, just try to see what my eyes can see and looking at some stuff that he was doing in years past to this year. But I'm definitely going to do that. I'm always fascinated by that stuff uh, because most of the time you can't catch a dang thing unless you know what you're looking for. And I know Alex Centron knows what he's looking for. But listening to those comments this weekend from Centron made me think about something. Yuli Gurriel. You know, the steep drop-off that he had from winning the batting title in 2021 and then struggling to, you know, what, 247, a bad on-base percentage, batting average balls in play. You know, like, there was times he wasn't even hitting the ball hard. He was striking out left and right. What happened with his swing from 21 to 22? And then what happened? What did Centron fix? What did Guriel figure out, if anything? I don't know. There must have been something. But to hit 316 in the postseason and be such a vital part, again, of the Astros' success to win a World Series. And the dude's continuing to match this year. He's hitting like 302, a couple of bombs, 15 RBIs. He's doing his thing. The on-base percentage is up. Batting average on balls and plays up all up across the board. What did Centron see? In Guriel's swing, was he able to identify anything? And if he did, was it too late or maybe just in time in the postseason? If that's the case, I want to give Centron and the hitting coaches an opportunity to figure out what's wrong with Jose Abreu. Because, again, I'll tell you this, without McCullers, without Altuve, without Brantley, and now you're dealing with the injury with Urquidy. And, oh, yeah, by the way, you don't have the best pitcher in baseball on your team anymore and Justin Verlander. You still made it out of the month of April with your head above water over 500. So you've figured out that you can manage for a month. And it's still early in the course of the season, judging just by two where you are positionally within your division, give Abreu and Cintron a little bit more time to figure things out because you've got some depth about to come back that's going to help you. Sean, I'm getting a little uh, pushback on Twitter because I'm talking about Abreu's contract could be one of the worst in Astros history. I'm bringing up Carlos Lee, Doug Drayback, and Woody Williams. But I'm just telling you, you look at the exit below, bats. I mean, there's a lot of metrics. And the thing that will continue to concern me is Jim Crane makes the statement in the offseason, well, we got to get a little bit away from analytics. And Jeff Bagwell, Mr. Non-Analytic Guy, is the force behind Jose Abreu getting signed, a 36-year-old that you're paying $20 million each of the next three years or 19 and a half or whatever it is. Look, I, I know that it's only April and he struggles in April and I get all that and, and maybe Centron can fix him. And, it, it, you know, Yuli got better, but you know what? They decided not to sign him 
despite what he did in the postseason and despite the fact he was quote unquote fixed. So my my thing is like, come back, you can bring me the receipts in a few months if Abreu turns it around. But what I'm seeing with my human eyes are, or is a guy that's really struggling to get around on those inside fastballs. And because of that, he's panicking at the plate on some of the outside stuff. And it's not just the fact that he's missing things. He's not swinging at good pitches. And Yuli Gurriel, for all of what he did, that guy was not hacking at some of the stuff that I've seen Abreu. I just see, I see some real panic. I see some panic from him. Yuli was a pretty good bad ball hitter too. I mean, let's not pretend. I mean, how many balls did he hit to left field where his butt went towards the visitor's dugout and the bat went the other way towards first base and he just happened to poke one over into left field, you know, top shortstop or third baseman and get a, you know, a favorable Crawford box home run from time to time. I mean, he was a pretty good bad ball hitter, Um, but he was a good hitter, professional hitter, proven hitter. I don't know what went into the decision to not bring Yuli back outside of just age and maybe they just didn't believe that he was fixed enough for them. Maybe from a value sense, it would have made perfect sense, judging that Yuli was not going to be paid $20 million per year. I don't even know what he got from Florida, but it was probably not even in the double digits because he was making seven or eight just the last couple of years with the Astros per year. But, man, when you go back and you start talking about, like, okay, bad contracts, what's going to be the worst in Astro history? I think it's too early because you said it yourself, it is just April. So you're uh, you're taking for what you've seen through 31, 32 ball games, whatever it's been now, and you're really trying to extrapolate it out and, and, and point to the long-term effects. That's a really difficult thing to do. When you bring up a guy like Carlos Salih, the guy hit 300 damn near every single year, drove in 100 runs, but it was for a mediocre Astros ball club. He, he played in the fat era of Astro outfielders and maybe the most non-athletic era of Astro outfielders when you had Berkman smashing tweakies out there every other day. And Carlos Lee was probably mostly criticized because he was fat, moved slowly, and didn't look like he was trying very hard in left field. And you had Craig Biggio making catches on top of Tal's Hill, and he had no business out there. But, you know, ball player, tip the cap to him. He did what he was supposed to do because he's a dude. I mean, it was not a great, memorable era for Astros outfielders. And now, you know what? It, it's looking a little bit better now that you got a Kyle Tucker in right field. Bad contracts? I don't know. Like, it could be, but it's 31, 32 ball games. I'm not ready to say, like, he's a bad contract. And maybe if you still have this opinion, I'm not going to change your mind on Carlos Lee's bad contract. What was it six years, 108? I don't know if it was that bad. I just think it was a not not the greatest ball club to maybe pay a guy like that on. Yeah, we have to remember that $100 million is different than what $100 million would be today. That was a ton of money back then. You also have to remember that Carlos Lee, his numbers were not terrible, but you got one all-star out of him in six years and $100 million. And let me just also mention, because as we're talking, the Astros have started playing. You mentioned the Arquiti injury, Luis Garcia, Mm-hmm. Goes out of the ball game after two batters in Monday's game. So yeah, you got yeah. potentially two guys hurt. Forrest Whitley, his ERA is not anything that good in Sugarland right now. The whip's not terrible, but the ERA, not so great. And uh, strikeout to walk ratio is not where it needs to be either. And and we're 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 literally hearing nothing about Lance McCullers, which is not a good sign. It's not. I don't know. No news is good news. Can we? Mm, I, I, I want to hear he's like soft tossing at least. I want to hear that he can move his arm in a in a forward I, fashion. 
I thought the last the last update it had to be inside of a week ago that I got from Adam Spolane um, was that you know he was he was ramping up his long toss and incorporating the breaking ball or something like that. I don't know, but it has been a little bit. Maybe it's been about a week ago. But, yeah, I'm going to operate under the notion that no news is good news uh, because let's remember, too, anytime you do get news from the Astros, um, there tends to be more questions than not that follow. So, so long as we're not hearing any bad news about Lance McCullers, I'm going to leave that guy alone and let him kind of figure it out. But, yeah, I'm a little worried about Urquidy and Garcia, you know, from a health standpoint. Um, I was looking forward to watching Urquidy kind of, you know, figure it out again the second time this season. After a bad first start, he put together two really solid outings, um, you know, kept the walk slow. We saw the strikeout numbers increase, you know, the hard hit percentage go down. And then it was just kind of like a, a rebound. You know, he, he struggled a little bit. And now that he's dealing with the shoulder issue. Maybe it's nothing. He just felt something. We'll see what the soreness is like in the next day or two. He did say he was day by day. So hopefully he's feeling better today and a little bit better tomorrow when he gets back out there. That dude's a freaking bulldog. Um, so I think it's going to take a little something to keep him off the pitcher's mouth. But we'll see, man. I'm not going to freak out at all yet. Well, I mean, the reason you have to worry is the fact that the Astros went into November last year. And, you know, that's a lot for a lot yeah. of guys on this starting pitching staff that don't Wait. have the innings and don't have the mileage and aren't used to it like Justin Verlander, even Justin Verlander broke broke down. So, I mean, it, and it was unusual. It's not just that they went to the World Series, but it's the fact that they went all the way to November because last year's season got delayed a week. So it was like an extra week less that they had to rest that arm in the offseason. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then, you know, shorter offseason season two for guys that maybe felt like they had to ramp up a little bit more quickly for the world baseball classic, even despite their um, usage in it. You know, I mean, I can't tell you off the top of my head how much Urquidy pitched, how much Fromber pitched in the WBC, but regardless, they're preparing their bodies, you know, at a time in which it's not used to being ramped up to that level, maybe. So maybe that factors into it a little as well. Um, I hate it because you have all those built-in excuses if these guys aren't able to stay healthy, um, aren't able to produce, you know, like they did last year. I go back to our conversation before the season even started when we were talking about all of these hypotheticals. Maybe, you know, who takes the next step or, you know, hey, who takes a step back here? And you know, I, I gave you a specific guy, you know, um, on the staff that maybe takes a step back. And, you know, it was Fromber because of just the terrific season that he had last year. Maybe it's him, but maybe it's everybody, dude, because of the reason that you just said. And no other Major League Baseball club, you know, had as many players go play in the WPC than the Astros did. And there's a lot of important players, a lot of key pieces. They all weren't key players, uh, you know, for their respective uh, national squads. But still, the ramp up, ramp up process does matter. Not spending time with your trainers, your team does matter. And playing more games and more innings and having more reps than everybody else, it does matter. So for that reason, yeah, just keep an eye on everybody. Um, you know, to kind of maybe take a step back. At least don't be surprised. I'll tell you this, taking a step back, 
still a damn good ball club. I mean, they proved it out again over the course of the last week and a half, two weeks of play, playing better competition and getting better performances from some of the guys that you're more familiar with. And the best part, guys that you're not familiar with continuing to roll, um, mainly like Corey Jobs, my dude, go Cougs. One last thing before we close. A couple of weeks ago, Houston Sports lost an icon that none of you who watched the games ever saw. Frankie Hicks passed away at age 95. He was an audio engineer for Rockets games for four decades, going back to when they played at Hoffines. Over his 66-year career in audio, he did Astros, Oilers, every season of the Comets, Rice football for 32 years, a legend in his profession. He started doing audio at KPRC in 1952 and was there for 43 years. And then, Sean, in 1948, he got a start in the business at KLEE Radio as the chief audio engineer. And as you might know, that's now called KILT. Yeah, <laughs> he's been doing it, uh, you know, for a while. He's a legend in the game, and I've seen countless tributes to uh, Frankie Hicks, you know, the last few days. I know Matt Musil did a really good one on uh, Channel 11 for him uh, a couple nights ago, which was awesome. I actually had the opportunity to work with Frankie Hicks a handful of times. Why still to this day, I don't know. I was 24, 25 years old, and they asked me to run the uh, board for a couple of Comets games and a Rocket game. And there were some other things that uh, I, I got a chance to do with Frankie. And it was Joel Blank who let me know exactly who I was going to be working with. And the, the best I can recall is that I knew I was walking into the presence of a guy that had been there, done that, seen it all. And I heard the term legend use. And so already having had a, you know, taste of working with Barry Warner for a little bit and his interactions. I was a little nervous, but man, there was not ever a boring moment around Frankie. He always had a story. He always had a joke. He was always teaching me something that I wish I could say to this day I remembered, but I know it hung on for a little bit, but I couldn't run a board right now to save my life. This guy could troubleshoot any issue that there was and I saw him do it firsthand. He was just awesome. But he made you super comfortable if you were working with him. And so I'll just remember Frankie for being an all-around good guy, super well-respected, highly regarded, and just an ace at whatever he did. Yeah, I mean, I worked with him doing Rockets uh, video production over at Channel 20 a couple of decades ago. And you said it, one of the best human beings in the business. He told me about helping with audio on the Apollo 11 and Apollo 13 moon missions. He met Elvis at the KPRC studios in 1955 when he ran audio for a couple of his songs and Elvis and the Colonel came to the television station and he was a World War II vet. Sean, this is how far Frankie goes back in Houston. For his seventh birthday, he got 10 cents. He used a nickel for a round trip on a streetcar into downtown Houston and a nickel to get into a matinee movie. That's how long ago Frankie Hicks uh, was was hanging out in the city of Houston. That's funny. Yeah, you, you've seen those books like in those old candy shops or whatever. Even they have them in Barnes and Nobles, like on the aisle, the little spinny things. And it's like what the world was like or what your town was like back in 1947 or whatever. And that's the price of everything. Yeah, Frankie's probably in one of those. <laughs> 
you know, like spending a nickel on, you know, public transportation back in the day to take you from A to Z. But yeah, that's very cool, man. He, what a, what a life, what a life, what a full adventurous, um, fun life that I know he didn't take for granted, but enjoyed every single last solitary second he'd spent on this earth doing what he was doing, being around the people that he was around and affecting people the way that he did. Um, because you left with a memory. If you were with him, you left with a smile on your face. You had a good time. Uh, even if you were like me and you knew you had no business doing what you were doing and getting paid for it, um, doing it with a guy like that, it just felt good about yourself. And it was cool just working with the guy who, when he started out, uh, or when he was young, there, there was no television. It was just radio. <laughs> and, and then he worked his way from radio and into television and met everybody, did everything. Everybody loved the guy, just the best. Uh, Godspeed, Frankie. And uh, Sean, um, if anybody missed our last three shows, got to remind everybody one more time. I'm going to put the links to them as soon as we're over with on YouTube. You're, I'm gonna, they're going to pop up as our, our links pop up at the end of the show. Uh, I try to find stuff that typically is related to what we're talking about. So I'll put that up. But uh, yeah, please go. If you haven't, we get way more into Will Anderson and CJ Stroud and Tank Dell and Juice Drugs. You got to go back and listen to, to those shows. If you were, you know, out this weekend or you missed it for whatever reason, go check that out. But uh, great, great catching up with you again. And we'll do this again on Thursday, man. Can't wait, man. Love talking ball with you. You're listening to Houston Sports Talk. Hey, don't forget to support us by subscribing and commenting on YouTube. You can always listen to us on Spotify, Apple, or your favorite podcast app. Tell your friends about us and share our show links on social media. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.